now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode three of our firearms research mini-season, Just Science sat down with Mark Pope, director of the Policing Research Program within the Center for Policing Research and Investigative Science, and Dr. John Hollywood, a senior operations researcher at RAND and the director of the Center for Quality Policing, to discuss mass shooting attacks. From Sandy Hook to Las Vegas to Parkland, there's been an uptick in deadly mass shootings in the past decade. In their new study, Hollywood and Pope extend their research on terror plots to look at mass attacks more broadly and their effect on the public. Listen along as our expert panel discusses their research as well as the educational toolkit they created to house their findings in this episode of Just Science. This episode of Just Science is funded in part by the National Institute of Justice's Improving the Understanding of Mass Shooting Plots and RTI International's Applied Justice Research Division. Here's your host, Peyton Attaway. Hello, and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Peyton Attaway, with the Applied Justice Research Division at RTI International. Our topic today is mass attacks. Here to help us navigate the conversation are guests Mark Pope and John Hollywood. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us today. Thank you for inviting us here today. Mark, according to your bio, you have expertise in policing, law enforcement data systems and analysis, as well as law enforcement's role in homeland security. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about your past experience in policing research and what led you to your current role in CPRIS? Well, thank you, Peyton. I'd be glad to. And we're excited to discuss this recently completed NIJ-funded project on mass attacks. So I started at RTI right out of college in 2000 and began conducting research in the policing area with our center director, Dr. Kevin Strom. And my colleague joining us today, Dr. John Hollywood, who is now at RAND, was also an early partner in our policing research work at RTI. And I'm thankful that we've been able to continue to have uh, collaboration opportunities over the years. So uh, during my time at RTI, I've been involved in and led projects that have all generally been focused on improving police operations by using data. My background and my master's is in information science. So I've always been drawn to the information and data needs of organizations. And in the context of policing, how we can improve access to and the usefulness of law enforcement data. So an early project that John and I collaborated on, which actually ties into the terrorism-related work that I'll mention shortly, assessed whether 911 calls about suspicious activity and suspicious persons could be used as a source of data on pre-operational terrorism surveillance. Again, this was in the post-9-11 focus on law enforcement's role in preventing terrorism. At the time, there was a, a major emphasis on preventing future terrorist attacks, and law enforcement became uh, front and center in that era. So from that project, we developed a process to take large amounts of 911 calls and pare them down into a set of calls that a human could review to assess for threats. We have since taken that initial work around 911 data and expanded it over the years to use these data to inform both policing operations and as a measure of what communities are asking the police to respond to. Uh, this has become very important over the last 18 months after the killing of George Floyd as communities are reassessing what types of 911 calls police should respond to and whether there are alternative response strategies that don't involve the police. 
So we've been able to analyze 911 data for a number of cities to help them make informed decisions in this area. Another key effort that I've been focused on for the last six years is the nationwide transition to the National Incident-Based Reporting System, or NIBRS, which is now the FBI's crime reporting standard under its Uniform Crime Reporting Program. The UCR program is the mechanism by which local law enforcement agencies report crime data to their state and ultimately to the FBI so that we have national data on crime. We've been working with the Bureau of Justice Statistics and the FBI through the National Crime Statistics Exchange Initiative to spearhead this national transition to NIBRS, which will ultimately provide much more detailed national data about the context and circumstances of crime. As our center and program has grown over the years, I've been fortunate to serve as a program manager overseeing and mentoring other researchers, and I now currently direct the policing research program within the center. In this capacity, I direct the program's cross-disciplinary team of researchers to understand and help solve pressing issues in policing, including officer health and wellness, policing analytics, and incident-based crime data, police-citizen relationships, and evaluations of policing strategies. Great. Thank you, Mark. John, according to your bio, you conduct decision science and systems engineering related research in the areas of criminal justice, homeland security, and information technology. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your past experience in the policing field and what led you to your current role at RAND? Sure. I got my PhD in 2000 in operations research and started work at RAND soon after. Uh, Much of my research was on seeing how to use technology, especially information technology, to improve counterterrorism and military operations. So I was at RTI between 2007 and 2009, where, as Mark mentioned, I got involved with them on research to help policing and have been working heavily on improving public safety and counterterrorism strategies and technologies since then. I went back to RAND to include several years directing the Information Geospatial Technology Center of Excellence with the National Institute of Justice. Uh, Mark mentioned projects on making better use of 911 call data, using that more effectively. We also wrote a technical assessment called Predictive Policing, the Role of Forecasting in Law Enforcement Operations, which is a widely used textbook on this topic. I've also led co-evaluations of predictive policing technologies in real-time crime centers, uh, helped lead over a dozen expert panels seeking to identify top needs for innovation in law enforcement and other parts of the criminal justice system. For the past few years, I've also led RAND Center for Quality Policing, which is a forum for fostering research development, uh, dissemination, and outreach on policing. Center brings together about 100 RAND researchers who collectively are interested in improving the state of public safety in America. Thank you, John. Before we get started, Mark, could you tell us a little bit more about RTI's Center for Policing Research and Investigative Science and the work that you all do? RTI's Center for Policing Research and Investigative Science conducts research, technical assistance, and training projects across a range of topics related to policing, investigations, and forensic science. Our goal is to address the critical issues and challenges facing law enforcement in the 21st century through science-based research and evidence-informed solutions. So to meet this goal, we actively partner with federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies and other stakeholders, such as crime labs and medical examiner and coroner offices. You know, a key focus of our work is that we collaborate with these partners on research projects to ensure our work has direct implications for the field and to help build the foundation of evidence-based policing. We have an amazing team of multidisciplinary researchers, which includes criminologists, data scientists, behavioral health specialists, practitioners, and analysts, including staff with direct law enforcement and forensic experience. And we believe that this diversity in skills and experiences when applied to research, technical assistance, and training projects can help the field move toward a better understanding 
outlining and addressing 21st century policing and investigative challenges. And John, could you tell us a little bit more about RAND's Center for Quality Policing and the type of work that you all do? Sure. I said uh, the RAND Center for Quality Policing, it's a forum to foster the research, development, dissemination, outreach related to improving state of public safety in America, bringing together around 100 researchers. I think like your organization also covers very much the full gamut of many different areas of expertise, many different areas of practice, many different, many different professional skills, just all linked by the, by the desire to improve policing in America. Uh, our findings are of interest to police at all levels, law enforcement technology developers, law enforcement policymakers and funders, as well as the general public. Uh, it's part of the Justice Policy Program within RAND Social and Economic Wellbeing Division. And specific topics that we currently have uh, research findings on include how to transform public safety in general in the post-Floyd era. Uh, we have findings on COVID-19 and policing, how to improve with that. Various bulletins for practitioners, as well as various bulletins for technology developers and acquisition personnel. And finally, uh, tools and findings for budgeters and planners. Can you both give us the high-level overview of your work together studying mass attacks and law enforcement's role in preventing and responding to them? You know, this work actually started about 10 years ago, uh, which led directly to the current study that, that John's going to talk about in a minute, uh, when we studied law enforcement's role in preventing terrorist attacks. So we just passed the 20-year anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And in the aftermath of 9-11, there was a very heightened focus on preventing future attacks, and law enforcement was called upon to add terrorism prevention and response to their responsibilities. Now, of course, you had some larger departments like the New York City Police Department, which was already had a focus on terrorism given incidents like the 93 attempted bombing of the World Trade Center. But the 9-11 attacks really changed the dynamic and brought terrorism into focus for every law enforcement agency in the U.S., and so core to the U.S.'s ability to identify and prevent terrorist attacks after 9-11 was what are broadly referred to as suspicious activity reports, or SARS. So that is reports made by the public or law enforcement about activity that they observe, which is concerning or out of the ordinary and could be related to terrorism. So a commonly cited program uh, related to SARS is the See Something, Say Something effort uh, by the Department of Homeland Security. You know, so for example, you might see an individual conducting casing activity or taking photos of, say, a power plant. However, there was little guidance about the types of behavior that should be reported through a SAR, either by the public or the law enforcement, and what information was most useful for disrupting a terrorist plot. So as researchers, we were interested in understanding more broadly how terrorist plots had been identified and stopped, as well as what had been missed in terrorist attacks that were executed. So we were able to conduct a project entitled Building on Clues, Methods to Help State and Local Law Enforcement Detect and Characterize Terrorist Activity, where we identified terrorist plots against U.S. targets from 1999 to 2009. And this included both foiled plots and executed plots to determine what types of suspicious behaviors and means of reporting most frequently led to or could have led to plots being discovered and ultimately prevented. For each of these plots and attacks, we reviewed publicly available information about each one and extracted data on their meaningful characteristics, the initial clues of the terrorist activity, what evidence led to a full-scale investigation, and how these investigations progressed. Some key things that we found when we analyzed these plots was that suspicious activity reports were most useful when the behavior being reported was atypical, significant in terms of the person's commitment on the part of the suspect, um, that the report was coming from a credible source, and it was specific enough to permit a true evaluation and follow-up. 
Another key finding from this initial project was that more than four in five foil terrace plots from the data we analyzed were discovered from initial clues that came from law enforcement or the public. A key point here is that in each community, the people that live there and the law enforcement that serve the community are most attuned to the norms of that community and are in the best position to recognize and report suspicious activity that could be terrorism related. So we fast forward to the 2010s, and terrorism is much less of an overt focus for the United States. But across the country, we're seeing an increase in non-terrorism-related mass attacks, particularly mass shootings, where there was no clear ideological motivation behind the attack. So this, of course, would include high-profile mass shootings, such as Sandy Hook Elementary, the Las Vegas shooting, and Parkland High School. Once again, law enforcement is on the front line of both preventing and responding to these types of attacks, and the public plays a, a vital role in bringing these plots to light. And so that's where what leads us to the current study that John's going to discuss. So in this new project, we wanted to extend the research we had done on terrorist plots to look more broadly at mass attacks on the public, especially with mass shootings. The first goal of this research was to characterize how these plots have been identified and foiled and what sorts of things have gone wrong when they were not. A second goal was to find ways to further reduce casualties on scene for plots that occur. And then the third goal is to be, take our findings and do something different than a typical academic report or journal article. Preventing and responding to attacks are both very complex undertakings with many activities and stakeholders involved, and our research strongly reinforced this. So we wanted to create something that would do justice to the full attack prevention and response enterprise while making it reasonably understandable and accessible to readers. We wanted to put all our findings in an educational toolkit that will be more widely applicable and engaging, make it easy to find for readers to find the information they need, point to resources to provide more detail as needed, and make it easy to keep it updated over time. Whereas with a standard 100-page report, once it's published, it's, it's over. So the project included four tasks. First was creating a large database of plots to attack bystanders in public places. We considered a total of about a thousand different plots. Over 600 of them actually got through all checks and were coded up. Uh, the team reviewed and assembled cases uh, from several dozen prior databases on mass shootings and mass attacks to do this, including our own database uh, from the prior work on terrorism plots. Uh, the team also conducted extensive internet searches, especially over the past five years. I'd say that probably finding foiled plots and plots besides mass shootings were especially challenging. Uh, second was interviewing dozens of subject matter experts from a wide range of types and agencies and roles to get their perspectives on attack prevention, response, and follow-up. The third was a detailed literature review to identify specific tips on prevention and response that were especially actionable and should be included in an overall toolkit, as well as to identify those resources for further reading that provided more detail on specific topics. Once that was done, the fourth task was to assemble uh, hundreds of pages of notes and findings into a coherent educational toolkit that would hit the most actionable points in prevention and response and give readers more detailed information and references as needed. To do this, the toolkit is set up hierarchically, showing arriving readers top findings and then guiding them to more detail in each major activity in prevention and response and then out to resources as needed. We had the draft toolkit revealed by an advisory panel of a dozen uh, subject matter experts who provided vital insight that greatly improved the final product. The resulting toolkit provides a guide preventing and responding to mass attacks systematically, uh, going end to end across what we call the mass attacks defense chain, a systematic set of phases and activities to prevent attacks, 
reduce casualties for attacks that do occur, and follow up afterwards to provide services to bystanders, responders, and the community to support resilience and recovery, as well as learn uh, for future attacks. That third phase following up after the attack was added to the toolkit after research made it clear it was needed. The toolkit also links to hundreds of resources to help readers with varying roles and interests in prevention and response. So do you guys have any data or information that shows the impact of the research that you've described? Sure. Well, going back to the original Building on Clues project, the findings from that project got high-level visibility within the Department of Homeland Security. And in fact, then DHS Secretary Janet Napolitano cited our finding that 80% of terrorist plots were discovered from clues provided by law enforcement or the public before Congress. Again, the goal here was bringing attention to the daily activities that were being done by law enforcement and the public to prevent terrorist attacks rather than seeing preventing terrorist attacks as an intelligence agency-driven or data fusion effort. There was also wide-scale training of law enforcement for the Nationwide Suspicious Activity Reporting Initiative that cited this work. For the current project, the toolkit hasn't been published yet, uh, but those experts who have seen previews have tended to be excited about it, wanting to get it out to the field quickly. Uh, if anything, the biggest criticisms have usually been asking for more, uh, especially for us to provide ongoing training classes, technical assistance, uh, provided expansions in specific areas of material, which aren't part of the current project, but we hope will be in the future. What were some challenges to completing your research? Yeah, there were a couple of, of challenges I wanted to highlight. Uh, the first was, how do you define a mass attack or mass shooting? One challenge with research on mass attacks and mass shootings is how you define them. And this is important to us because it, it impacts the cases that we identify to include for analysis. So there's no single definition of a mass attack or mass shooting. Researchers have used different definitions over the years. A common attribute generally, though, for all of them, uh, for the research done in this area, is that it usually involve a minimum of three or four deaths or intended deaths, not including the perpetrator. Uh, so that's kind of the, the baseline of where we start with. However, if you're just using that number of individuals killed or intended to be killed, you may also include incidents related to gangs, organized crime, and domestic violence where there were three to four plus victims. And so while these types of incidents are an, an important public safety issue and critical to, to address, our study was focused on mass attacks where the unaffiliated public is deliberately targeted. So we took into account who the victims of the attacks were and their relationship to the perpetrator. We also considered the location of the attack or planned attack to ensure it occurred in a public space, such as a mall or other location where the public gathers, including schools and workplaces. So ultimately for our project, we defined mass attacks and mass attack plots as any violent attack or plot to engage in an attack in a public space where public spaces include schools and workplaces in the United States that endangered or was intended to endanger the lives of four or more people. In this definition, we did exclude attacks specifically related to gangs, organized crime, violence, or domestic violence incidents in which the unaffiliated public was not deliberately targeted. So for example, under these inclusion criteria, a domestic violence situation where four or more family members were killed in a home, we would not have included that case. However, if it was a situation where there was a domestic violence situation and one of the family members went to the grocery store and killed or intended to kill four more people, we would include the case in that situation. And so as John related, you know, we had nearly a thousand cases we had to apply these inclusion criteria to, you know, make sure they met the inclusion criteria so we'd include in our analysis. You know, a second issue that came up, and it was one that I really didn't think about at the start of the project, was in doing the case review and the coding process, 
you know, we found that the coders did have some emotional and mental impacts. For each of these cases, we coded 50 plus variables about the sequence of the attack, how the attack was discovered, you know, victims. And so it's easy to get in a scenario where we're thinking about things only in the aggregate, but each of these cases represents tragic situations and circumstances that involve violence and trauma. And, you know, there's certainly a, a possibility of negatively impacting the mental and emotional health of the folks doing the coding, because we did, we coded over 600 cases. And so in seeing that, and we wanted to make sure we addressed that. So I was overseeing the case coding. I made a point of asking each coder how they were doing. Do we need to make adjustments in the types of cases they were coding? So maybe they didn't want to focus on school-related cases or cases involving family members, or if they needed to take a break for a period of time to decompress. So it was a, a long process, and you know we just had to be aware of that. And we also scheduled coding sessions where we would meet in a Zoom room format to connect as a team and ask each other questions about particular cases. And so I'm extremely grateful to the coders from RTI and RAND whose diligence made this project successful. That's a great point, Mark. I think a lot of times we as researchers are really focused on, you know, how these incidents impact police, especially in our Center for Policing Research and Investigative Science. But oftentimes, too, us as researchers, our mental and emotional health is also impacted in a lot of ways. So it's great to hear that you incorporated that into the project. And John, is there anything that you would like to add? Absolutely. I mean, I would say key challenge of the scale and complexity of the project. Uh, you know, 600 cases, each with 50 variables, and the stress of, of, of doing that coding and finding the cases, conducting dozens of interviews, often on sensitive matters, looking across hundreds of references, basically all together, looking at hundreds and hundreds of pages of findings and supporting notes, boiling all of this down to something tractable for a consumable website was quite the challenge. Uh, further, the design of the toolkit itself to make all this contact about something as complex as attack prevention and attack response focused and accessible took a great deal of effort and multiple rounds of review and revision with our, with our experts was extremely helpful to be able to do that. Can you guys tell us a little bit about what the next steps are for your project and work together in this area? First, I would say we're looking at emerging areas that are coming out of this. Um, I'd say probably the part of looking at what to do following the attack after the immediate response to support community response and resilience, provide for the victims and responders as well as learn from the event. Um, there's some material on it, but much less so than for how to, to detect and prevent attacks and how to do the immediate response for attacks, both of which uh, have seen a lot of effort over the years. Uh, in terms of specific recommendations that we have, the top finding that we have for everyone is what we call the power to prevent. Uh, remember that earlier, uh, Mark mentioned that, that we found that about 80% of terror plots were foiled domestically through law enforcement and the public. So the similar takeaway here is that almost two thirds of foiled plots in our data were foiled due to public reporting uh, of direct threats to kill as well as activity directly related to attacks like trying to recruit for plots, stockpiling weapons of training for an attack, or conducting research on how to kill large numbers of people. The vast majority of suicide activity reports, which is made very clear from talking with our subject matter experts in interviews, end up being handled outside the criminal justice system, uh, often to people getting the help that they need. Uh, and then the reports that come in need to be uh, assessed and then addressed with what we call relentless follow-up. 
You need to really be having a multi-agency, multi-stakeholder team that is systematically assessing the incoming reports, determining what to do about them, which is mentioned is mostly going to be wellness checks and service provisions, and then follow up on what has been done to make sure that nothing falls through the cracks. The second is broadly on the need to support the prevention teams and response teams within a community. Uh, mentioned that prevention needs to be coordinated through the multi-agency, multi-stakeholder group uh, that can bring in whatever resources needed for prevention. But that then means that you are supporting the planning, the funding, the training, and the ongoing operations and evaluations needed to keep that all going well. Uh, on the prevention side, we saw needs for improving training and procedures on educating the public on what to report and how. As mentioned, that was mostly about reporting direct threats and activity directly related to carrying out a plot finding and addressing pre-attack gun diversion, uh, wellness checks on people reported as a potential threat to themselves and others, a lot on the importance of this, much less on how to specifically to, to carry out a wellness check, as well as on threat assessment in general. Lots of stuff and potential indicators and clues, not as much on systematically, here's how to assess the risk of someone poses and even more usefully, what specific services they need. Uh, development and fielding of these need to be funded and can and should be integrated into existing community partnerships related to violence prevention and community health. Uh, one thing we run into is that despite as horrible as mass attacks are, especially with respect to a country of 330 million, they are very rare. So maintaining vigilance is very difficult, but if you can integrate that with existing community and violence prevention and services, we think you're, you can be in a, in a much better shape to, to maintain that. Similarly, on the response side, we repeatedly heard and saw the need for integrated responses to attacks, starting with bystanders on scene security, then bringing in uh, responding law enforcement, but also fire, EMS, emergency management, even people who would be responsible for handling incoming bystanders, family, reporters, and then from there, uh, smoothly transitioning to carrying out uh, follow-on responses and services for the community, bystanders, and responders. Again, there needs to be planning, training, and regular coordination and preparation to do all that, which again should be part of uh, other community emergency preparedness and disaster response coordination and training. Preparing and training for the follow-up actions, as mentioned, appears to be the biggest need. I saw about a lot of ongoing trains and exercises to respond to do the immediate response. Uh, I myself actually co-led uh, the technical evaluation at an active tutor exercise in uh, Grand Central Terminal in New York a few years ago. But that, like many others, basically just ended with the immediate response. And then I'd say to things to go on after that, you know, new research areas, I'd say just being able to look at the complete chain of all the actions that are part of systematically defending against mass attacks and seeing all the partners' roles and skills that are needed was exciting for us. Uh, we look forward to being able to take the next step with this, moving towards being able to provide training classes and technical assistance, as well as expanding and updating with the toolkit as new research and operational insights on mass attacks are always coming in. We are also interested to see if we can adapt these findings to help with violence prevention more broadly, including all those mass violence that we were not able to address with the scope of this project. So not just the uh, bystanders being targeted in public. Thank you so much, John. Can you guys let us know when you anticipate the toolkit being released? So at this point, we're looking for the release in about the mid-January to early February timeframe. Most of the research is done. It has mostly completed through the quality assurance and peer review process. So it's just a matter of formatting and programming the, the website that will be published. We're running near the end of our time together today. Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? 
With the research we've done in this area, I'm always struck by the importance of human connections and human intervention to stop or limit the extent of these attacks. So whether that is a member of the public or a police officer noticing something that is truly suspicious and outside normal behavior and reporting that to authorities, and then law enforcement and other first responders diligently following leads to uncover and stop a plot. So while we live in a digitally connected world, it often seems that human intervention is still the primary way to uncover and prevent these attacks. As we've reviewed these cases, the clues about mass attacks are often visible and made known by the attacker when we refer to that as leakage. And it really just takes someone being vigilant to report that information and see it as important and concerning. You know, another final thought is the ongoing need for multi-agency response to this issue. So that includes uh, behavioral health organizations, other first responders, in addition to law enforcement. You know, law enforcement is a critical role in this, uh, but they are not the only organization that needs to address this issue. Thanks, Mark. And John, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with us today? Sure. I said I've been both encouraged and heartened by the fact that, you know, I think we do collectively have the power to prevent a lot of these and reduce casualties and lessen the impact of this on America. It does take, though, a, a collective effort you know, again, the power of human connections, but also the importance of making sure that, that we are collaboratively working against these plots and are providing the necessary funding, planning, and training to do that. Well, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank our guests today, Mark Pope and John Hollywood, for sitting down with Just Science to discuss mass attacks. Thank you, Mark and John. Thank you, Peyton. It's been a privilege to be here today. Thank you for having us. We greatly appreciate it. I'd also like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in today. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. For more information on today's topic and resources in the field, visit RAND.org and click on Center for Quality Policing or visit RTI.org slash policing. I'm Peyton Attaway, and this has been another episode of Just Science. This episode concludes our firearms research mini-season. Next week, Just Science sits down with Dr. Jen Rainier to discuss efforts to increase women representation in policing for a special release episode. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding.